Tonight we are talking about love, and if you've seen any of the brochures about our series Love to the End, we've used words like these to describe the love that we're talking about this Holy Week. Tenacious, persevering, unrelenting. We don't often experience love described like this, love that is fiercely strong, firmly devoted, and unwavering no matter what the cost. For most of us, we probably experience more of the modern cultural idea of love that is shallow, hollow, and empty. Well, Monday Thursday is a visceral reminder of the strong love that Jesus has for his disciples. And in John's gospel, we see the love displayed as Jesus washes his disciples' feet. So I'm going to read three chunks. In John chapter 13, we'll start in verse 1, and I'll let you know when we skip to the next section. So John 13, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, To betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, "'Lord, do you wash my feet?' Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Then skip down to verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at a table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then skip down to verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's stand and ready our hearts by singing and praying this song together.
Heavenly Father, that is our prayer this evening, that you would speak to us through your word by the power of your spirit, and that you would help us to comprehend the depth of the love that you have for us. We ask you to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this summer, I will celebrate, we will celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary on June 16th. And so I've been reflecting a little bit about that first month of marriage. And to be honest, it was a little bit rough. We were both uh, living in Birmingham at the time. I was, I had raised financial support to be a church planner uh, for a year. It wasn't a ton. And so I would work all day at the church and then I would go and donate uh, blood or plasma at the donation center uh, and read for an hour and a half. And then I'd go to the cabinet shop that night and build cabinets and paint. To this day, I still tell Kelly that she has a blood diamond, and it's my blood that actually paid (laughs) for that diamond. But just prior to our wedding, the Lord made it clear that we were no longer to go out west and to plant a church. So we pulled the plug on that, and then along with that, my financial income went away. So just three days before we were to get married, I suddenly had 
no job. It's not exactly what I told her father when we were eating brisket at the barbecue joint that I would be doing taking care of her. In addition to that, we found out that we needed another $1,000 for our wedding reception, so we spent our last $1,000 on the wedding reception. You're welcome if you were there. And uh, so there I was, also with no more money. And then, as soon as we got back from our honeymoon, I was desperate, and so I took any speaking engagement that I could get. So the day that we got back from our honeymoon, I left for like two or three weeks to go around and speak at summer camps. And so, in addition to not having any money and having no job, I also had no time. It was not a good start for that first month of marriage. No job, no money, and no time. And to be honest... I was feeling like a failure during that first month. But it was also an amazing month because my wife, during that first month of marriage, though I was dealing with the shame of failure, she never wavered in her love and her devotion to me. And she began to teach me about how Jesus loved me. You see, she knew me and She was loving me. Now, that hasn't described our whole marriage. Our marriage has its ups and downs like everyone else. And I don't mean to make light of anyone's struggles because I know there are more painful things that happen in marriage. But that was really uh, made a big impact on me in our first month of marriage to be loved like that. Well, John 13 is a perfect picture of that kind of love. The kind of love that Jesus has for his disciples that is tenacious, persevering, and unrelenting. Love that we all desire and love that is offered to all of us in the gospel. So let's take a look at that together. I actually want us to focus on looking at the love that Jesus had for John. Look at verse 23. It says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at a table close to Jesus. You know, throughout the Gospel of John, even though John wrote it, he never refers to himself as John. He always refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. I was telling Kelly, my wife, that this week. She said, that kind of sounds a little arrogant. Uh, And at first glance, it may sound a little arrogant. But as you look closer, there's a reason that John describes himself in this way. It's not an arrogant statement because consider what John wrote about himself in the Gospels and specifically in the Gospel of John. You may remember that he was the younger brother of James. Do you remember the nickname that Jesus gave James and John? Sons of Thunder. Perhaps it was a gentle, humorous admonishment. And remember that John and James both wanted to call down fire from heaven against the Samaritans in Luke chapter 9. You know, Peter gets a bad rap, but John, you know, he, uh, he had some work to be done as well. He was a disciple that was always asking Jesus. He was always posturing among the disciples to be the greatest. James and John were the sons of Zebedee. You know why? Uh, their father is mentioned is because he was probably well known. He was wealthy. He was 
prominent, and he may have been, even been a possible Levite, and so they felt a little bit entitled. It's also interesting that in all the gospel accounts, John speaks and acts alone only one time in all the gospels. Do you know when it is? It's when he confesses to Jesus in Mark chapter 9 that he had rebuked a man for casting out demons in Jesus' name because the man was not part of the disciples' group. So let me summarize John for you. John was an intolerant, judgmental, harsh, ambitious, narrow-minded, selfish, aggressive, zealous, reckless, prideful, competitive, and explosive fisherman. John's senior superlative in his class could have been most likely to kill someone. (laughs) And you know what? Jesus knew. He knew John's failures and his shortcomings as well as anyone. John was one of the three in the inner circle with Jesus. John was fully known by Jesus Jesus also knew the failures of the other disciples seated at the table with him. He knew that Judas would betray him in verse 11. He knew Peter would deny him in verse 38. And he knew that all the disciples would desert him when he was arrested. And now, think about that. Knowing the type of man that John was, having lived with him for the last three years, it says in verse 1, That Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You see, Jesus fully knew John, and John was deeply loved by Jesus. Look at that phrase for a minute. Love to the end at the end of chapter 13, verse 1. What does that mean? What does it mean, love to the end? It's on the front of your bulletin. It's the theme for all of Holy Week. What does it mean to love to the end. Well, listen to what one New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, writes. He says, the words to the end might be taken adverbally to mean to the uttermost. But if end is taken temporally, basically the clause means that Jesus loved them to the very end of time. So you can translate this two different ways. Both the adverb and the temporal translations are valid, as Ed Sinclair wrote in his great devotion in the Holy Week Guide this week, Jesus' love is not limited or linear. It's why the 1984 NIV paraphrases this verse because they translate it uh, considering the adverb saying, he showed them the full extent of his love. So tonight we're looking at this idea that Jesus loves us to the uttermost, the depths of his love. And we look at this passage and we ask the question, how much does Jesus love us? Well, we see how much he loved the disciples because he's the one who takes off his cloak, who humbles himself, who grabs the towel and the wash basin and washes the disciples' feet when nobody else wanted to stoop to that menial task. He shows them how much he loves them by washing their feet. But like Ed said in the devotional, it was a prelude to the cross when Jesus would be stripped of his cloak, when he would be beaten, when he would be mocked, and when he would be nailed 
to the cross, not to wash their feet, but to wash their hearts. You see, we realize the intensity of the love that Jesus has for his disciples when we see how much he knows them and how much he loves them. Now, as I was reading this text this week and meditating on it, the thing that came to my mind was how can we be known and loved like John and the disciples? Well, there's a conversation that Jesus has with Peter as he's washing the disciples' feet that I think answers this question really well. It's in verses 6 through 10. Look down there if you have your Bible. I love this interaction with Peter. So Jesus comes to Peter and Peter says to Jesus, You will never wash my feet. You know, again, Simon Peter thinks he can tell his master what he may or may not do. And then Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. See, Jesus is telling Peter that he needs a foot-washing Savior. He needs a dying Savior. So the light bulb sort of comes on for Peter. And so Peter says to him, Well, Lord, not just my feet, but then also my hands and my head. Peter's pendulum swings to the opposite extreme. He says, I'll take the whole spa package. I'll have all of it. (laughs) And then Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And again, to quote the theologian Ed Sinclair, he said this means, you are fully saved, bathed in the purifying blood of Jesus. The other thing that struck me in this passage, though, is that this interaction with Peter is probably the hardest part of the passage. As I thought about it, it's a lot easier to give our love to other people than it is often to receive love from others. Think about it. Which takes more humility? Does it take more humility to serve someone else? Or does it take even more humility to admit that you need help from someone else or that you possibly might even need a Savior? And what Jesus is telling Peter and what he's telling us is that we cannot present ourselves before God as clean. We need to be washed. We need Jesus to cleanse us. If we, like Peter, try to stand on our own before a holy God, we will have no part with him. And friends, this is the gospel. This is good news. Because, you see, the good news is not a call to love Jesus to the end, but a call to be loved by Jesus to the end. Did you hear that? The good news is not a call for us to love Jesus to the end, but it's a call to be loved by Jesus to the end. You see, we understand in this text that it's not Jesus' teaching that saves us, but it's his loving to the point of death. We aren't simply brought near to God by his example, but we are brought near through the blood of Jesus. And once an individual is cleansed by the shedding of his blood, he or she does not need that blood shed again. This sets Jesus apart. 
from the founders of every other major world religion. Think about it. Buddha didn't shed his blood. Muhammad didn't die on a cross. Confucius didn't do it either. You see, they all tell you what you have to do to have peace and what you have to achieve and how to make yourself right with God through your own actions. It's conditional love. But Christianity is not what you do for God, but what God has done for you. It's not our love, but His love that allows us to stand before God. Jesus looks at us. He sees us. We haven't pulled the wool over his eyes and he says, I see you, I know you, and I will do whatever it takes to bring you back to the Father. I love the way one pastor put this. He says, do you find the idea of Jesus having to die for you, to pay your penalty so that you could be accepted by God is a repugnant doctrine? Your problem, the reason you can't find God is because Jesus is not too far away and too high. He's too near and he's too low. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing flood? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have you humbled yourself before this humble Jesus and received the righteousness of Christ? If you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian tonight, have you seen your need of Jesus? Are you still trying hard to be loved by being good instead of seeing that Jesus has done everything for you? And for those of you who are Christians, do you realize how much Jesus loves you? I read one author this week that asked, do you know that Jesus loves you in the morning sun and evening rain? That he loves you when your intellect denies it, your emotions refuse it, and your whole being rejects it? Do you believe that God loves without condition or reservation and loves you this moment as you are and not as you should be? The same author also wrote, It is a message of grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunks who show up at 10 till 5. A grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party, no ifs, ands, or buts. Eager beavers and grinning drunks. Tonight is the night to receive the love of Christ that has been freely offered to us in the gospel. And that's what Jesus is referring to in verses 34 and 35 when he says, once you understand that I love grinning drunks and eager beavers, once you understand that you are loved like that, then you are called to love others. Don't love in order to be loved, but love because you are loved. Jesus calls us to follow his example of serving others. Why? So that others will know his love. He says, let me wash your feet and then display to the world this foot-washing, kneeling, sacrificing love. That's what happened to John. 
spending three years with Jesus, being served and loved by Jesus, transformed him. What do we know about John, the aged patriarch, after the resurrection? You know what his new nickname became? He was known as the Apostle of Love. Do you remember who Jesus commissioned to care for his mother when he was dying on the cross in John 19? He commissioned John. And church history tells us that John never left Jerusalem and cared for Mary, the mother of Jesus, until she died. You know, John wrote a ton of the New Testament. And he talked more about love than any other writer of the New Testament. In his gospel and his epistles alone, he mentions the word love over 80 times. John also outlived all the other apostles. He was persecuted. He suffered. He watched all of his closest friends be martyred for their faith. He was exiled. And history tells us that he became the pastor of the church that Paul had planted in Ephesus. And Jerome, an early church historian, in his commentary on Galatians, said that John was so frail in his final days that he had to be carried into the church. And one phrase, one phrase was always on his lips. My little children love one another. Asked why he always said this, he replied, it is the Lord's command, and if this alone can be done, it is enough. Think about this. The son of thunder became a tender, devoted, humble, patient, courageous, compassionate, loving, warm, merciful, and bold apostle of love. Jesus loved a man who wanted to burn up the Samaritans, who was obsessed with status and power, and one who forsook him and fled rather than suffer for his sake. And in loving John, this son of thunder, he turned him into a new creation, the apostle of love. Friends, if grace can transform John, then grace can transform everyone. Let's pray. Father, your love is truly amazing. And it's just hard to comprehend the depths of the love that you have for us. So Father, we pray that through this passage of seeing that you loved your disciples by washing their dirty smelly, gross feet, that it took infinitely more to love and to wash our dirty, gross, and rebellious hearts. Father, may we see how much you loved us as we eat of your bread and drink of your cup this evening. Father, help us to remember that your love is persevering that it's tenacious and unrelenting, that you fully know us and we are fully loved at the same time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.